out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the British post-punk synth band all the way from Glasgow. It is going to be The Wake, because I recently spoke to Gerard Micanolti. Sometimes has the word Caesar thrown in the middle. I think that's to his friends. Anyway, after a very long conversation, which has been edited out, um, which was us getting to know each other. We'd never met, you see. Anyway, we got down to that very exciting subject that were the early formative years. And um, I told him my influences, which was fascinating, but you don't need to know those. And then we got down to uh, Gerard. Gerard, tell us about those early formative years before you got into, well, a band. And then you came into the world that was Altered Images and The Wake. Anyway, I'll leave it to Gerald to tell the story. It's over to him. Absolutely, yeah, that, that was my beginnings in music as well. I mean, my eldest, I've got two older sisters and, you know, they had kind of chart singles, you know, that, that was what they bought. They liked, they loved the Beatles, of course, and um, uh, they had a lot of... Uh, chart singles, you know, just kind of one-off things that they bought just because they liked that particular record. Yes. So that, that was that was probably the first stuff that I listened to. Uh, yeah. But certainly the, the, the first stuff that I actually uh, kind of became connected with was, uh, yeah, glam, glam, 70s pop music, yeah, totally. Yes. So when so so when did you start to sort of think, oh, actually, this, this is kind of going to be more than me, you know, because I'm just a happy punter, mm. you know, and a fan, whereas you took it to the next um, level. I, I I mean, the first record I bought was a T-Rex single. That, that would have been 1971. I would have been about 10. Then. Yes. Um, I think the first concert I went to was also T-Rex. Well, it was the first concert I went to was T-Rex. That would have been about three years later. Right, my God, that was very uh, cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, that was my, my big sister took me to that as a, as a treat. So how old was um, your sister compared to you? You know, how many years difference was there? Not exactly sure of the exact figure, and I don't want, <laughs> I don't want to I don't want to overestimate. No, God, that would be horrendous. Yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, no, was uh, yeah, she was a good few years older than me. I mean, she was kind of uh, when I was uh, a teenager, she was getting to the stage of, you know, getting engaged to boys and all that. So she would have been just coming up to twenty or something oh, okay, like then. that. So she wasn't a Bay City Roller fan, was she? She wasn't. No, no. Uh, they kind of went, um, kind of went, uh, yeah, kind of from the usual kind of 60s stuff. Uh, by the 70s, they were kind of more interested in their own personal lives and music. Yes. You know, I mean, I think this is another distinction that I tend to make with people. I think certain people, when they reach their 20s, start to focus on, you know, their, their, their work life and, yeah. and, you know, their kind of marital kind of, prospects and everything and that was something which kind of bypassed me really at that point you know I was just so kind of into my music and um, you know I became more and more interested but I would say there was definitely I, I was starting to learn guitar uh, probably about the age of 16 right but you're, you're only talking about learning a few basic chords and strumming out a few songs 
probably started to experiment with writing. It would have been just around the time of punk. And that's what kind of catapulted me into into actually thinking, oh, you know, I, I could do music here, you know, so. Yeah. So were you always kind of, was it always that kind of glam T-Rex kind of Bowie, then punk stuff? You, you, you didn't sort of slip into the world that was kind of, I don't know, a bit of heavy metal or prog rock or status quo or Alex uh, Harvey. What about how, I did? did. No, I, I actually, no, I did uh, vary a bit. Uh, I went, I would say after T-Rex, <clears throat> Uh, and you know, I I was only interested in T Rex probably up until about seventy five, and you know after that when Mark Bowen was trying to resurrect his career by you know doing the TV show and stuff like that, I I, I was well out of it by then, yeah. and I I think that probably even from the early seventies I started to listen to. I'm trying to think what else I was really interested in. I think my next big love was 10cc. Classic. Yeah, yeah, the Manchester group. I, I think I started, and I suppose you would have to describe them as kind of vaguely progressive, progressive pop, really, rather than progressive rock, I yeah. suppose. Sophisticated. They were sophisticated, weren't they? It's just funny. They were some... sophisticated and, and clever, I think, and, and actually brilliant, brilliant tunes. Yes. And, of course, most vitally, I mean, the the, the big connection is that uh, they started Strawberry Studios in Stockport. Yeah, which became really vital to the Manchester music scene later on. Uh, you know, crucial to Joy Division and so on. Because I know Paul uh, Handy. Yeah, I, I loved Ten CC, and I, I went through a phase of really loving Stevie Wonder as well. Uh, so you know, I, I kind of went all over the place a bit for a while. Yeah, and it was and it was punk that uh, kind of brought. But then again, when I say punk, I was only vaguely interested in things like the Pistols. Uh, you know, only liked a couple of singles for me. I was always more interested in the Buzzcocks. Yeah. And uh, then the kind of stuff that came after that, the kind of more experimental, kind of so-called post-punk stuff was much more important to me. I was never a Clash, Pistols, Jam fan, never really took any interest in any of that. Yeah. Well, it's no, interesting because so, there was a book that mm. came out a few years ago by Paul Hanley called Leave the Capital, A History of Manchester Music in 30 Yeah, the recordings. guy from the fall, yeah. Yes. yeah of course. So he d- yeah. he talks a lot about that whole sort of 10cc and the rec- uh, the studio that they, they built. I think it was very important because I always remember Tony Wilson and uh, Rob Gretton, who was the manager of uh, Joy Division in New Order, and uh, one of the directors of Factory Records, Rob, really appreciated the fact that 10 had created something uh, for the Northwest. You know, I mean, the, the studio was actually based in Stockport, which is just on the kind of, out, well, you'll know that, it's on the outskirts of Manchester. But uh, it's uh, it was such a, a kind of inspiration to them, I think. I mean, I, I don't know that there were 10 fans as such, but I think they really appreciated the fact that they they brought something back to the town. Yes, you know? well, I, I think when someone's quite decent and, um, mm. yes, a bit of philanthropy, I think that's called, it's called, isn't it? I think you kind of can't help but warm to someone, really, rather than just going to buy an island on the, you know, I don't know, South that's Pacific. Right. You know, it's yeah. kind of like, God, yeah. oh, you really, well. you do really care about the place. Rather than go, great, I've got enough money, I'm going to leave, bye. <laughs> well, 
missing you already. So with 10, you know, 10cc and um, the track, I'm not in love. Did you love the B-side as well? Because I spoke to someone yesterday or the day before, and they said, I love the B-side called Good News. And I remember thinking, God, I have to have a look at that. But it's funny because I haven't heard anybody talk about 10cc for a long time. So it's... Yeah, uh, was that Good News? Yeah, I know that track. I can't remember. Was that the one that was on the B-side? Yes, that was on the B-side. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's a great track. Yeah, there's another one, an uh, obscure B-side Channel Swimmer? Uh, Channel Swimmer. Yes. Yeah, that, yeah that's, that's really great. So, yes, there's, there's obviously a few, quite a few people who went into indie bands who love 10cc. There you go. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, certainly the, the producer that we work with, Ian Cat, um, he, uh, you know, he does uh, Bobby uh, Ratton stuff uh, from, uh, well, Bobby's worked under various names, but... You know, he was the Field Nights, Trembling Blue Stars, and now Lightning in the Twilight Hour. Uh, we met Ian Cat, who produces our records now with us, uh, through Bobby. And I know that Ian is a, a fan of 10 Seasons as well. But I mean, I, I think quite a lot of people like them. We had a kind of uh, shift once uh, Godling Cream left him to do videos and, and stuff like that. It kind of fell apart for them creatively. You know, they became quite a kind of middle-of-the-road group yes. really at that point, you know. But certainly in the early 70s, yeah, they were very, very interesting. Yes. Very, so what very Because you grew up in Glasgow, didn't you? Did, yes. So what was yes. kind of, I mean, because there's a lot of bands have come out of Glasgow, mm-hmm. especially in the 80s indie world. So were you part of a kind of a musical community of people that you went, oh, yes, I went to school with that person, or we all went into bands? Uh yeah, I well, uh, uh, apologies if you already know this, but I, I was originally playing guitar in uh, Altered Images. Right. So yeah. So <laughs> no, I forgot that, that actually. <laughs> yeah, that 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 was my first uh, that was my first musical venture. So after learning guitar on my own and so on, and trying to kind of find my way, to, I, I wrote some songs and then. Uh, Altered Images, the rest of the guys in Altered Images, not not clear, but the rest of the guys in Altered Images were at the same school as me. Right. Uh, I was one year older than them, so I didn't really mix with them, but one of them lived just round the corner from me. And then we met up one day and he said, oh, you know, we, we, we're trying to put a group together. And uh, that was uh, when I joined them. That was in 1979. Right. And I was there. I was there for two years. You know. So, yeah, yeah. I was in, I was in Altered Images for two years, just playing guitar and writing songs and so on. Um, and John Peel left. loved the band, didn't he? He he, he adored. Well, yeah. Uh, at the time, I mean, I did two John Peel sessions with them. Um, so that 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 was at the time that we were kind of quite different from what they became known for. They were kind of more associated with a kind of, uh, you know, a kind of, well, people said they were influenced by the Banshees and the rest of the group certainly were. I wasn't a huge Banshees fan myself, but yes. uh, I was more buscox oriented. But um, yeah, yeah. So we did two Peel sessions, uh, did tracks like Dead Pop Stars. Oh, because I did, did an interview with Claire and she said, yeah. God, that came out just as John Lennon got shot. And it was like, oh, shit, bad timing. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, I, I, I wrote that song, Dead Pop Stars, before joining the group, actually. And uh, the lyric, obviously, nothing to do with 
pop stars getting shot and anything like that. It was actually about existing, living pop stars who had kind of lost their creativity. They were kind of dead in the creative sense. Yes. You know, that, that's what the song was actually about. And uh, funnily enough, yeah, so we, we signed to CBS and because John Peel was a huge uh, fan of the song, uh, when we recorded it in session, he raved about it. So CBS, who we were signed to at the time, wanted to do that as the first single. And yeah, sure enough, by the time it came out, John Lennon had, had been shot. Whether it had made any difference, I mean, there's a kind of anecdote now that that prevented it from being a hit. But I, I don't really think that was the case. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think it was just coincidence. I don't think the BBC said, oh, we can't possibly play this because of what's happened to to old Jono. You know, I, no, I, no. I don't think that had anything to do with it. I think it was just that we didn't really have the profile at that time. You know, we were kind of at that stage where we just signed to the label. You had to put a couple of... In those days, you really had to put a couple of singles out to to build up any kind of press attention and radio play yeah. and so on, you know. So that that was the situation. Yeah, but I, I was in. Yeah, that's right. That's where I started. Altered Images, and then uh, left in 1981 uh, to <clears throat> start the wake. Um, and at that point, of course, while I was still in Altered Images, and while we were starting to uh, put the wake together. Uh, we were right in the middle of uh, the Glasgow music scene, uh, just really taking off with Orange Juice and Aztec Camera, Strawberry Switchblade, all these groups. Yes. Uh, and and, you know, and Alan really Horn. And I guess Alan, Alan Horn. Alan Horn, yeah. That's right. The first uh, wake demo we took to Alan. Um, I've just been writing about this recently, actually. I've been writing a piece about the Glasgow music scene in the early 80s, and uh, it's not generally known that we took our first demo to Postcard, um, and it wasn't a very good demo, to be fair. Uh, we, we recorded ourselves far too early. In fact, I think it was the first thing that we did. We didn't even have a rehearsal together. We just started recording ourselves and recorded two tracks that we made up on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, took it round to <clears throat> Alan Horn because I already had met Alan and the rest of the Orange Juice guys a couple of times. So, so took it round to Alan and he was very kind about it. I mean, it was far from the type of thing that uh, would have been you know, suited to postcard um, and it wasn't a very good demo when I listen to it now I, I think uh, you know, it's really not very good and we recorded ourselves far too early but yeah we took that round to Alan and he, 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 he found the positive aspects of it and encouraged us you know, just to keep working away at it, which was exactly the, the feedback that we needed at the time. Yeah. But uh, uh, Glasgow was a, yeah, it, it was a really, I mean, it was a short-lived scene here. You know, it's been very, very influential, as you know, over yes. the years. And uh, uh, when you listen to some of the music that come out of it, I think it deserves to be, you know. I think the Orange Juice stuff really stands up. 
Yeah. yeah. Well, absolutely. Well, but it's also kind of interesting because yeah. you'd obviously had sort of huge chart success with altered images because you were on you were on Happy mm. Birthday, weren't you? No, I left before Happy Birthday. Um, Happy Happy Birthday is a song was. It came about at a time when I was really, I was becoming more and more interested in things like alternative TV in the fall, and the rest of the group were kind of liking Duran Duran and Adam and the Ants and stuff like that. So it was the classic kind of musical differences, really. Yes. And I, 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 it really was. And I, I felt, thinking back now, I mean, obviously when you're young, you just do things in the spur of the moment, but I think I made the right choice by instinct because I think you have to keep your creative spark alive uh, or else you just end up going down the road of providing what a major record company wants. And the major record company at that point, <clears throat> we're really pushing us towards becoming more commercial as they saw commercial being, which, yes. you know, I mean, for instance, we, we went from supporting the likes of Susie and the Banshees, The Cure, into supporting Adam and the Ants, playing at the Dominion Theatre in London in the afternoon for a bunch of kids, you know. I mean, I, I'm really talking six, seven-year-old kids here. Yes, yeah, so I remember you... Yes, I think yeah, Jimi Hendrix you know, so. once went on a tour with the Monkees, didn't he, and suddenly realised it was probably a bad idea. Yeah, that's right. I've heard that story as well. That's <laughs> right. Yeah, and you do you do begin to think, well, I don't know, is this what I really imagined when, you know, starting out? Uh, and there was also more and more sense that the record company were becoming involved in telling you what you should be doing next and, you know, what you were allowed to do next and what producers you should be working with and so on. So at that point, I just thought, well, uh, yeah, I, I, I need to go. So actually at the time, so I, I told the rest of the group that I was going to be leaving to do my own thing and um, give them plenty of notice. And, but I stayed on for a while to, you know, fulfill gig commitments and yeah. so on. And uh, one of the rehearsals that we had, uh, it was John, the bass player, who came in with uh, the bass line for Happy Birthday. It uh, wasn't called that at the time, uh, but he had the kind of bass part for it. And um, it, it was a good pop bass line, but the guitar that I put on top of it was like really vicious. Really, I, you know, I was listening to things like Metal Box at the time. <laughs> and, yes. you know, that's what I was wanting to do. And I was wanting to put that across to the rest of the group. So I kind of splayed this kind of crazy guitar all over his bass part. And uh, I think that showed that this wasn't really going to work anymore. You know, they were wanting to kind of become lighter and fluffier and I was just wanting to find my creative feet, really, and be able to do what I wanted to do. So, yeah. So I left, and uh, then yeah, Happy Birthday came out after that, and you know, um, yeah, that that was obviously you know where where we kind of parted company, really, you know. Yeah, but then you must have had the enthusiasm to hit, you know, the stroke, the strokes, the the wake, um, and to sort of form a band quite quickly together. So that must have. Um, because you didn't waste any time, did you? No. The, 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 yeah, things happened very quickly back then. Uh, and, I mean, I think, again, it was kind of to do with uh, the energy that was kind of flying around Glasgow, you know. There was um, 
that there's so much going on and um I, I I think the thing that encouraged me more than anything was the the existence of postcard records and the way it was really coming to prominence because I had an instinct that independent labels were actually really important to the creative life of groups. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously postcard as an independent entity didn't last very long you know they've very quickly kind of moved on just onto polydon things like that but at the time we started the wake it was a really strong thing and there was a kind of emergence of factory postcard rough trade you know there was lots of other labels there was fast product in edinburgh yes and, and, uh, you know that, and um, yeah and it, it all just seems so much more exciting to me on on every level yeah. uh, the the artwork the 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 groups the the obvious creative control that the groups had you know that just all seemed really exciting to me yeah uh, because during that time because there was there'd been a lot of high unemployment as well so there was a lot of bands yeah who were quite young yeah. so they could sign on and do the job seekers allowance and enterprise allowance schemes which were quite that's handy. right yeah and I that know, kind of I gave people a, a kind of a right. grant almost for a year to sort yeah, of do whatever. That's and then, true. Yeah, yeah. And that was good. And then you also had the kind of, you know, the John Peel show, which was always a great person to sort of get, you know, kind of right. some exposure. Um, and then the music papers as well and, and venues that kind of all sprung up around the country. So there was kind of a good yeah. network, organic network. It was. It was, uh, yeah, that, that's the point. It, it was organic and uh, you always felt as if you had... Yeah, something that you could aim towards. You know, as you said, you had a radio show in London that you could, uh, you know, take your stuff to. There, there was other shows as well, like the Kid Jensen show. Yes. Played some independent stuff, you know. The Kid. Yes, uh, I remember yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. We had we had your own stations probably around the country. In Glasgow, we had a couple of uh, radio shows that were quite willing to, you know, you didn't need to have a plugger to take your records into, you know. So, yeah, I mean, it was a really, it was, it was a really living thing. And uh, I think it was short-lived, but short-lived in practice, but I think it's had a really long life in terms of its influence. And uh, uh, as you say, people are still rediscovering that stuff today, you know. Yes. And that's, that, that's quite encouraging, I think, because a lot of the stuff that was on major labels and seemed to be successful at the time is now stuff that people don't really care about anymore. No, it sounds dreadful because you had that kind of, it's kind of interesting in the 80s, this is slightly simplistic, but you had the indie kind of sound that we loved, well, I did. And then you had that kind of Trevor Horn-esque kind of mainstream stuff, which was quite sort of brutal and um, cold. And I, I sort of find that yeah. that sounds really dated now and embarrassing yeah, to even does, think yeah, about it. Yeah. So, so obviously, it really does, yeah. yeah, it does sound terrible. So, and then when you heard Bowie, who sort of did, you know, Tonight and Never Let Me Down, which was very 80s sounding, it just sounds terrible. But then with the band, you had a quite a good, you know, you had quite a strong lineup to begin with. And so that, and you kind of got a sound together, and kind of got signed to Factory all relatively quickly, didn't you? Yeah, we did. Um, <clears throat> so as I said, we did our first demo very quickly. Went to Postcard, got the feedback from Alan, and then uh, we went away and did a lot of gigs for a while. And uh, by the next, actually, but we started nineteen eighty one. 
it would have been the middle of 1981, and by the end of 1981, we had recorded our first single. Yeah. Uh, now, we did that on our own label, uh, which uh, at the time, through Rough Trade, you could actually get, I mean, probably other bands have told you this already, but you could get a fact sheet from Rough Trade at the time, which told you how to release your own record. So it gave you a step-by-step guide of, you know, the process to go through to get to take your your songs from the point of composition to the point of actually production and distribution. Yes. So it was it was very helpful, and we we followed that process and we pressed up a thousand of our own singles uh, of on a honeymoon, <clears throat> and um, I mean, it was quite tough going. I mean, it, it, that came out very early in 1982. So we, we recorded it at the end of 1981, put it out in 1982. But it's hard to get rid of, rid of a thousand singles. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yes. Even though there is an independent scene, when you're an unknown group, uh, you know, you are literally taking 20 singles into a record shop and asking them to to put them in the window or something and hope that some people buy them, you know. I mean, it really was like that. Um, so we, we went through that process, but we ended up, I, I mean, I personally ended up with hundreds of singles stashed under my bed. Yes, it's a classic, you know, isn't it? <laughs> for a long time, for a long, long time. Of course, now you can't get one for any price, you know. But uh, then that, that, that's what happened at the time. But what, what we did get out of it is we took the single down to Manchester to... First of all, we went to Richard Boone, who was the manager of Buzzcocks, and uh, he had uh, his label, New Hormones, uh, which was actually... That, that's the, one of the first independent labels to come out of punk. I think it was the first independent label to come out punk uh, that released the Spider Scratch EP. And uh, we took that down to Richard, but he wasn't really doing the label anymore because Buscocks were becoming a big commercial deal and he was just trying to manage, you know, the group and deal with the major label scenario and all that. But he advised us to go to Rob Gretton uh, who was uh, one of the directors at Factory. Uh, and we took the single along to Rob. Can't remember how we discovered his address, but in some kind of stalkish way, we managed to track him down. <laughs> and uh, we turned up at his door with the single. And that, 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 that's what got us the, the connection there, really. You know, I think Rob liked the fact that we'd had the initiative to do our own single and to bring it down to him and he offered us some support dates with New Order. Yes. When when we, we played with him, you know, a handful of times, he then said, why would you be interested in doing something in Factory? I was a huge fan of Factory as well, you know. Yes. At the time, you know, uh, the way that they presented the records and everything I thought was really important and uh, seemed like something that had a long term quality to it, you know, uh, which it did turn out to have, you know, so uh, that that's how we got connected with Factory, but that was the, that was the story of how, how, we, got how going. we started out, yeah, and I mean, it was a kind of, 
it was a short process because you are talking about starting in the middle of 1981 and having a, a mini album out on Factory by 1982. So it was one year. Yes. So when you, because after that, you had a quick shuffle of change because Bobby Gillespie was on bass at one stage, but then he kind of leaves. The original bass player, uh, when we started, it was myself and uh, Stephen Allen, who was a drummer. Uh, Stephen was that kind of long-term member of the group. Uh, so it was myself and Stephen, and then we had a, a bass player originally called Joe Donnelly. Uh, Joe, we knew Joe wasn't really going to stay. Joe was more of a kind of Simple Minds fan, and we knew that he wasn't really going to hang around for long with us. You know, he had he had his ideas of his own, and uh, I think eventually he ended up in a group called The Silencers from Glasgow. If you've heard of them, but um, anyway, we that was the original bass player. Uh, but Bobby was a friend of mine uh, from my time in Altered Images. Uh, Bobby was uh, used to hang about with us in Altered Images. I mean, it's quite often wrongly stated that Bobby was an Altered Images roadie, but he wasn't really. He was just a friend of the group, and we didn't have any roadies. We just used to carry our equipment into gigs ourselves, of course, like most too, you know, and Bobby helped us because he was a mate, you know, and he travelled about with us. That's all there was to that. But yeah. um, anyway, I stayed friends with Bobby when I left uh, Altered Images, and uh, then uh, Bobby didn't play anything at the time. But you know, we need we had some gigs, and uh, we had recruited uh, Carolyn, who plays keyboards for us and is still with the group. Um, and with Stephen, Stephen the drummer's, uh, that was his uh, sister. And uh, so we recruited Carolyn, and then we needed a bass player. So I just, I had already written the bass lines, and I just said to Bobby, why don't I just show you how to play the bass and, you know, get up on stage and do it. So uh, that, that was how Bobby became involved, and he had the guts to, to stand up there with us at the beginning, you know. Yes. Uh, but, yeah, we... we, we Apart, you know, Carolyn and Stephen and myself were the core of the group, and we we had many bass players over the years. You know, we were always changing bass players. Uh, Bobby had uh, started uh, a version, a very early version of Primal Scream with Jim Beatty in 1982, uh, and uh, they they supported the wake at a gig, and um, Bobby was kind of getting interested in doing more of that, and. Uh, you know, so eventually, yeah, we kind of parted ways so that he could concentrate on that as well, you know, so. But, you know, this this is the thing. I mean, back then, yeah, there was uh, a pool of musicians around Glasgow as well, you know, people were kind of swapping groups at a rapid rate. Yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> well it, it, it does sound very exciting. It does sound very exciting. Yeah, it was, it was an exciting time, yeah, no. No question about it. Yeah, it was, and um, I think uh, it's uh, what was happening in Manchester at the time when we went down had a similar uh, kind of urgency to it, you know. But uh, I suppose the main difference between Manchester and Glasgow, Manchester always had that ambition to kind of outdo London. It was very, very 
you know, it, it saw London as a rival and it wanted to compete with it and and do things more stylishly and, and do them in a bigger, with a bigger kind of sense of, oh, you know, Manchester's better than London, you know, whereas Glasgow was very, very divorced from all of that. Yes, but also... Being, being further north, I think, you know. Because you, because you know, like I said at the kind of start, there was kind of a punk, then post-punk, and then kind of indie started, and the very early eighties, there was like Orange Juice and a few other bands that I suppose Simple yeah. Minds and U two. But then eighty, well, I, 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 I was going to say then eighty three was kind of when the Smith started, and and then Manchester really did become right. something. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, that's right. Well, I, I, um, I always object to the term indie as defining a type of music. Um. To me, it was a term invented by the music press to undermine the notion of independence in music. Um, I think you've got to remember that the term indie was first used. It was either by enemy or sounds. It was used to, dis- you know, they started a chart. To, oh, yes. Um, yeah. You know, to, yeah, so that they could, you know, kind of have a, a, a chart that wasn't the real chart. So there was this kind of implication that this is just kind of uh, pretend music, indie music, you know. I think it was kind of very undermining time to use. And later on, it, it came to be used as, as if it was a style of music, but there was, there was no such thing. Independent labels were filled with lots of different styles of music. You know, you could have synth duos. There wasn't all guitar beat groups. But we know. were always very confused because St- Stock, Aitman mm. and Waterman was kind of independent and they 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 were always, uh-huh. num- yeah, they were always number right. one in the indie charts, weren't they? And you thought, yeah, how come Kylie's right. number one and The Fall are number yeah. two? That's not fair. But yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that, that's <laughs> right. That, that's what happened. I mean, it became a very kind of confusing term. And I think... The idea, I mean, for me, when the Smiths appeared, that's when I started to get quite suspicious. I thought, oh, right, this is becoming a thing now. It's uh, jangly guitars, and therefore you are indie. You sing about a certain type of lifestyle. Yes. You wear certain types of clothes. Orange juice was so much better than that to me, you know. Uh, I think the Smiths borrowed so much from them. Yes. But kind of commercialised it. It wasn't as uh, it wasn't as stylish as what Orange Juice did for me, you know. And um, I think we've all seen where it ended up, you know, <laughs> uh, with Mister Mister Stephen Morrissey's <laughs> political views, you know. And I, I think that's the thing. I think politics was really important to people at the time as well. You know, the whole notion of uh, independent labels. Um, was that it had a political dimension to it. Not in the Weller kind of red wedge way where you had to make singles that were, you know, slagging off Thatcher or something. You know, it wasn't it wasn't that direct. But there was a political dimension to the way that groups operated and the fact that the you know they they kind of retained this sense of uh, creative control over their own work you know yes. which which i think was very much lost by by 1983 really 
Nine. But then, but it was interesting because it was quite a tri- it was quite a tribal time, you know, in the sense that you had the sort of mainstream yeah. charts, and that felt like Thatcher's children, you know, and everybody was having a good time on top of the pops with big shoulder pads yeah. and lots of balloons, and everyone's, you know, got that production sound, and everyone's clapping along to a very basic beat, and then you had that kind of the lefty kind of kind of groove that we um us in us socialist workers party types you know red, yeah. like you mentioned red wedge as well and there was the red skins yeah. and mm-hmm. and you know billy bragg came along didn't he but so the, yeah so you know it, it was kind of, it was kind of a bit tribal and also we got very obsessed with labels so if you know people on 4ad or factory and there was creation records you know everything had kind of kind of a quite a status didn't it had an identity behind it, didn't it? Yes. I, I think, yeah, I, I think the most interesting periods of uh, of music are when you can't really tribalise a group. Uh, you look at a group like the Duruti Column, you can't really pin that down and say it belongs to this style of music, this fashion statement. It doesn't doesn't fit in with anything. It just is. Yes. Benny Wedley is doing at the time. That's the most interesting type of music, you know. Uh, it happened at Factory. I mean, I saw it at close quarters, you know, when Factory became more and more dance-oriented and uh, with the emergence of... Uh, I mean, they always had a certain ratio. You know, they, they were always a, a, a dance music group. But they had a kind of unique edge to them, I think. You know, they were far ahead of the game completely you know they were doing something very different from what other people were doing uh by the time of uh the mondays and james and stuff like that it just all seemed a bit fashion driven to me and uh that you know i i from the life of me i cannot understand why people would listen to that stuff and ignore the duty column you know <laughs> I, I just don't. I just don't see why you would do it. The, it, the music is so much more going for it and uh, much longer lasting and much more interesting. But you know that that's the nature of pop music, I suppose. You know, um, times change and and uh, things become newsworthy. Uh, I think a lot of music has to do. It has to have a kind of lifestyle accompanying it. Yes. Well, I suppose. I it yeah. Really appeals to students that whole thing, you know. Well, because my, my favorite group of all time is the Fall. The Fall. And you never fitted in any 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 aspect of music fashion at any point. No, know? but then I and, think uh, I think kind of there was a shift towards the late eighties where ecstasy suddenly came in, and and suddenly that that next yeah. group of sixteen to twenty year olds. You know, yeah, who'd, who'd exactly. been sort of around since 82, 83, had sort of got to that age where they needed to do other things like get a house or get a relationship or get a life. One of those. Yeah. Um, and the yeah. next group, yeah. came, the next kind of group of people came along and they wanted their own kind of soundtrack. And I suppose the Happy Mondays and Stone Roses and mm-hmm. Prime, Primal yeah. Scream were kind of offering that kind of gateway to some sort of heaven, wasn't it? Indie heaven, indie discos, we love them. Yeah, well, that, that's right. But I think this this is the problem. I think this is where the, the headlines take over from the actual creative side of, of work, you know. Um, Orange Juice, going, going back, I mean, you can't keep going back to the same period, but it's interesting because that's where it all came out of. And um, those groups were not... 
they've been ignored by the mainstream, certainly, but the impact that they had came genuinely from the work that they were doing. But the work that groups like you're talking about, it all came from a lifestyle, an idea of a lifestyle of living in a certain way, of going out partying and so on. But it's all fantasy life, you know, it's all it's all fantasy life. It's nobody was really living like that, you know, and uh, uh the way things are packaged. I mean, when I look at pop music from the nineties, like so called Britpop, which is a term I absolutely detest. Um you know, when I when I look at that stuff, I think it's one of the worst pieces of music that, you know, I can I can think of, you know. I mean it's it's backward. Yes. So when you saw when you saw the great you know blur oasis kind of war, did you cry then? Um, it was just a joke to me. You know, I mean, I was listening to the Fall in 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 the nineties. If it wasn't for the Fall albums in the nineties, I could have very easily become completely disillusioned with music. You know, but the creativity that I heard in the Falls albums in the 90s, which are, it's a period that a lot of people dismiss from them, even people who like them. But um, <clears throat> I heard a group kind of moving forward and not compromising, and then that kept me interested, you know. So groups like Blood and Oasis were just a joke to me, and they still look like a joke, you know. They were just another bunch of lads that wanted to be pop stars, and that never interested me. Yeah, slightest, you know. I don't even think they were very good at it. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, you know, but you know, they've got the sales to to prove otherwise. But you know, I can't imagine that many people uh, can really say that there was anything original happening there. You know, I really don't don't hear it. No, it was it was kind of um, it was a it was, I suppose, for someone like myself at that stage. Yeah, there were a few bands that I I kind of got quite intrigued by, but um, mm. yeah, but, yeah. But at the same time, I kept thinking, God, yes, these are the children of the indie pop years of kind of the eighties, really, weren't they? These are the people who went to a lot of those gigs and mm. were quite young, and then formed bands, and then hit the car- you know jackpot, you know, financially. I yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah, that's what I don't get. I mean, I don't understand how you can look at <clears throat> the bands of the early eighties and then end up producing what you did in the nineties. You know. It seems like a terrible betrayal to me, but um, of course the music industry changed quite a lot <clears throat> at that point as well. Yeah. You know, so uh, may- maybe there wasn't an option anymore of independence, and uh, I mean even rough trade had changed drastically at that point. You know, I mean they were putting out groups like the Strokes and the Libertines and things like that, where I just started doing by doing things like the Pratts and the monochrome set. Yes. That's, that's a huge shift. You know, the, the Strokes are just a bog-standard rock group, yes. whereas the Pratts were three teenage guys from Edinburgh, you know, like literally teenage, 13, 14 years old. Yeah. Um, so going back so to that... Times have changed, you know. Times very changed. But then going back, when you kind of, you know, because the first album came out and that that sort of... Was okay. It didn't get kind of that brilliantly received, did it? But then the second album is the one that it all sort of. Well, how, how many? Yeah. Well, in the music press, it only got 
<clears throat> a couple of reviews, but they were very, very positive reviews. Yeah, but uh, it it, uh, it it didn't sell a massive amount. No, no, no. no. I mean, it, it did okay, you know, but it, it wasn't. Yeah, it didn't it didn't do a massive amount. Um, but of course, at that point, <clears throat> we were kind of just, you know, that 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 was a first record, so it it wasn't hugely. Uh, important to us that you know it, it kind of broke us or anything like that you know we were just we were just working on the music and kind of developing in that sense again you know so but then it came to it comes together on the second album doesn't it? here comes everybody which seemed to be the yeah the moment it all the the stars line up don't they and that's the kind of yeah. that's when you must have felt when you were recording well when you'd been writing the material and then recording it did it feel like you'd got the line up and everything that you were doing had come together on that album? Well, it was actually quite the opposite. Uh, we didn't have a, a proper line-up when we did Here Comes Everybody. So we did Harmony. Bobby Bobby was still playing bass in the group uh, for Harmony. And uh, shortly after that, we parted ways and uh, we had another bass player in... Uh, for the Talk About the Past single. And then we weren't really happy with his attitude, so we got rid of him and we went in to do Here Comes Every Day and it was just the three of us, so it was just uh, myself and Stephen, the drummer, and Carolyn on keyboards. So I ended up having to play bass as well as guitar on Here Comes Every Day. So really, at that point, we were in a state of flux rather than settled yes so that that's the thing about the week we were never <laughs> we were never that the kind of band to you know or you do your first album and then you get your line up together and it's all sorted and then you go in and it never worked out that way for us we were always kind of uh trying to move forward creatively and changing things without worrying about oh we need to have a permanent settled lineup when we're going to do this record you know yeah so we we, we went in to do that very much off the cuff really yeah it but wasn't did, settled at all yeah but when you were because because now listen to it you know it's kind of one of those masterpiece albums from from that decade maybe and it still stands up but i just wondered if you know with a lot of people they they kind of had that feeling that yeah this is this is kind of all coming together really well at the moment um i'm trying to think back i mean yeah yeah actually well we, we when we released talk about the past we were approached by a few major labels so i think i think there was something happening there uh, you know Island Records tried to sign us and uh, I think there was a few others like Polydor um, there was a few labels kind of uh, talking to us about doing something we never really had any intention of leaving Factory at that point um, so it, it, it wasn't something that we had kind of considered but I suppose there must have been something hovering around the group at that time where there was a bit more interest in this. I'm not quite sure why, maybe because we'd done appeal on a couple of BBC sessions, you know, and I talk about the past single had done reasonably well, you know, and um, yeah, there was maybe a sense that from, from the outside it probably looked to people like we were kind of getting it together and going somewhere, you know. But um, <clears throat> it wasn't really... 
it wasn't really a big concern for us. You know, we 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 uh, always we were always thinking about the next record. We we just kind of moved from record to record, and uh, we were always writing new songs. I mean, one of the things that we did when we played live is we never really played songs that people knew. We were always playing songs that people hadn't heard yet. Yes. <laughs> so when Harmony came out, we were playing songs from that would end up in Here Comes Everybody that no one knew. And then when Here Comes Everybody came out, we were playing songs that, you know, the next set of songs. So. But then did you... That, that, that was the influence of, of the groups that we admired, you know. Yeah. Moving forward, you know, creatively, like Public Image Limited and The Fall and so on, you know, they, they were always doing that as well. Did it feel like a wrench when you left Unifactory you know, to sign for Sarah, or was it quite a relief at that stage? Yeah, it was a relief because <clears throat> actually what's happened is we did an, an EP with Factory. Um, that's EP with uh, Gruesome Castle and Pale Spectre on it and stuff like that. And then <clears throat> when when we finished that, Factory was becoming more uh, dance music interested, you know. I mean, it, it, the, the, the was a, <clears throat> there was a bit of a problem there for us because they were obviously becoming more and more interested in that type of music and we didn't really fit the profile anymore. Uh, but of course, <clears throat> Factory being what it was, they would let groups kind of meander on doing whatever they wanted to do, um, which groups like ourselves in the Duruti column just continued to do what we wanted to do. But it became, <clears throat> whereas Vinny was managed by Tony Wilson and... Um, he always knew that he could rely on Factory to, to back him, you know. But with us being based in Glasgow, we had that kind of disconnect there where we kind of felt every time that we phoned Factory with a proposal to do a record, especially at that, <clears throat> that stage, that we weren't really sure if they were, you know, really wanting us to do it anymore. And... Um, I think they probably were, but interested, but we just didn't have the feeling that we had 100% backing anymore, you know, and <clears throat> then things like uh, the Happy Mondays and James was just beginning to take off a bit for them, you know, and uh, we felt <clears throat> that maybe we didn't really belong there anymore. So we sat out, I think maybe even for a couple of years, and because of the way that independent labels worked back then, it wasn't as if you were on a contract and you were contracted to do a certain amount of records or, you know, you knew what your uh, schedule was going to be for the next year. It was, it was, you went from record to record and just see, you know, we want to do this, can we do it? And <clears throat> we, because we kind of sat back for a couple of years and, just concentrated on playing live and songwriting. It turned out that at this point, uh, we had, uh, you know, we were friendly with the uh, Orchids who were on, say, the records right from the start. Yes. And um, <clears throat> they had said to us that the uh, Matt from Sailor Records was a Wake fan. And that the field mice, who we didn't know at the time, we hadn't met the field mice at the time, but the field mice were big Wake fans, and um, 
they were all really interested in hearing what we were going to be doing next and everything. And then we thought, well, why don't we just send our new stuff to them? You know, and we're, yeah. we're not obliged to work with Factory. We're not contracted to them. Um, maybe we could do another record with them. But uh, when we put out the EP, something that no one else could bring, you know, with Gruesome Castle and Pale Spectre on it, I mean, it was really badly distributed and promoted and everything. So at that point, we thought, well, if we're going to be on a label that doesn't have much promotion and, you know, is, you know, not going to, uh, spend a lot of money on a studio time and so on, we might as well do it with a new label. And uh, that's why we moved on to Sarah then. It was purely because the Orchids kind of gave us a nod that they would be interested. And so we sent down, we did a demo of uh, Touch of Flowers, first single that we did with Sarah and sent that to them. And um, it just felt like a new beginning in a way. Yes. You know? And in, interesting, because Sarah at the time, you know, were they've been kind of fanzine writers, haven't they, Matt and Claire, and, and were, you know, living in Bristol, you're doing their stuff from, a, you know, Bristol, almost a bedsuit. But the label has become such a cult thing now, hasn't it? So actually it's been... Yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of been a lucky move in a way, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it has, because um, y you would never know at the time, uh, obviously when we... Started it with them. Say the records was really, really a tiny concern, and um, it's one of the things that you know always gets brought up. In you know whenever anyone interviews us now, it's the fact that we were on two kind of uh, big uh, lab uh, independent labels. You know both Factory and Sarah, and then you know that's most groups have a connection to one label in their lives, but it's quite unusual to have a connection to two well-known labels, you know? Yes. And uh, certainly, I think I think what Sarah did was, um, it, it, obviously it was something that Matt and Claire, I think, had <clears throat> probably, they were the ones that had kind of had a scheme for the label you know, I, I mean, we had no idea that they were going to stop after releasing 100 records and so on, you know, but they'd obviously thought a lot about that side oh, of yes. it. yeah. I think, you know, they, they kind of planned out as a kind of concept, really, whereas labels like Factory and Postcard were <clears throat> much more kind of um, just, you know, it was kind of uh, experimental, really. I don't really think anyone had a clue what they were doing. They just kind of but inventing it all, all as it went along. And I think Matt and Claire learned lessons from the earlier labels, you know, and, and thought about how they wanted to present themselves. And there was a kind of uniformity in the way that they presented groups, which suited us, really, you know. Yes. It, was, um, it, it kind of worked with the way that we wanted to do things, too. Yeah. Uh, and then we, 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 were, we were already friendly with the Orchids, so, you know, based here in Glasgow like ourselves and then um, we became <clears throat> especially friendly with uh, Bobby and Michael from the Field Nice and we ended up spending a lot of time down in London with them and uh, staying at uh, Bobby's house down there whenever we were in London and became really, really close friends, you know. So I think it, it was the right move for us at the time, although we didn't really know why we were doing it. 
we were just working by instinct, really, you know. It felt as if our time at Factory was up and that um, Factory was going to become much more of a kind of clubby dance music label, you know. So when, I was going to say, because Sarah finished in 95 and that's when you'd done your two albums with them and then that's when the band, did you sort of feel at that stage that you'd also wanted to, you know, put a full stop at the end of that as well with the band? It was a bit, it was a bit more vague than that, really. Uh, it's difficult to keep a group together, uh, as anyone can testify who's tried to do it. <laughs> it's very, very difficult, you know. I mean, myself and Stephen started the group. Carolyn joined very, very early. Myself and Carolyn always were and still are really committed to it. But probably by the time that Sarah was uh, folding, Stephen was beginning to feel a bit restless, you know, about what he wanted to do with his life. And um, so he was kind of changing course in, in, in his life and everything. So we kind of <clears throat> ended up in it and we'd lost another, yeah, another bass player at the time as well. So Carolyn and I were kind of left on our own. <clears throat> the label had folded. Um, we didn't really know where to turn next. We knew that we still wanted to do music, but we had also become interested in uh, theatre work. Um, I had started to do some writing and directing of plays, and Carolyn had started to do some acting. And it turned out that over the next couple of years after Sarah folded, we kind of uh, started to focus on that a bit more. And uh, we started a theatre company called uh, 12 Stars and uh, started to do theatre productions, which still involved an element of music because we commissioned soundtracks from uh, a group called Adventures in Stereo that was uh, Jim Beatty's new group. I don't know if you've ever heard any of their stuff. Uh, We commissioned uh, music from a guy called Mick Slavin, who's a guitarist in Glasgow. Uh, Mick has been a member of various groups over the years, uh, really, really excellent guitarists. Uh, We commissioned music from the Daruti Column and from the Pastels here in Glasgow which was a real kind of turning point. So I was writing and directing those plays. Carolyn was acting in them, and we were commissioning music from these uh, friends. And uh, uh, we kind of did that for about a decade, really. But we started to make music again, uh, mainly because uh, James Nice, who does the... At the time, the label was called LTM. Oh, yes. Yeah, but he, he, he now does uh, LTM, Factory Benelux, uh, Crepe School. You know, he, James has revived various of the uh, imprints from back in the day and has uh, uh, kind of revived and, and reissued a lot of uh, music. He's now reissuing Daruti Column and ourselves, you know. But anyway, James came to us in the early 2000s to reissue our stuff. And uh, because there was a lot of interest in it, that just got us back into doing music. And, um, you know, 
we went through a period of not doing music. We were doing theatre, but we still had the connection to music because we were working with friends here, you know, and and uh, keeping that music element really strong within the within what we were doing. Uh, when when the reissues came out, uh, it didn't, you know, it didn't take us long to get back into doing music. But we're now a duo. It's just yeah. myself and Carolyn. Yes. Now, and uh, when uh, for recording, and when we play live, we have the Orchids rhythm section playing with us. Uh, so when you kind of, because you actually, obviously you didn't sort of stop making music and you didn't stop creating, so, you know, your creativity, you, it wasn't like you went and got a day job. I think it was um, a guy, Phil, from the June Brides, I think he gave up music and became a civil servant. So I think he, he completely stepped away from the creative world. So you didn't do yeah. that you you kept in there all the time haven't you yeah we have yeah uh we're doing the the theatre company uh uh as i said it still contained a huge um musical aspect to it and um i think that i mean uh, i think we were always intending to make music again but you know it, it's just a case of uh reassessing how to go about it, really. And again, as we were saying at the beginning of the call, the kind of uh, evolution of the internet and everything suddenly opened up a lot of new areas and possibilities, really, for, you know, how to get music out there again, you know. We went we went so reliant upon a label. Yes. You know, supporting us and so on, you know, so, yeah. And yeah. did you enjoy making that? Because you made a light far out, didn't you? In was it two thousand? That's right. And was that? A, That's right. Did you enjoy that experience getting that together? Yeah, hugely. Yeah, yeah. We're really, really happy with that record, and uh, we did that. I think about eight years ago, and really, very, very happy with that. And um, it felt, you, you know, what. what when you're recording stuff when you're young, you're kind of at the mercy of all the circumstances surrounding you. You, you know, you're in a studio, you feel that <clears throat> the engineers that you're working with know more than you do about what you're doing, and you're trying to keep that that kind of sense of your own personal, what you want to hear, you know, on your record and everything. And it's a bit, bit of a struggle when we did a light far out. You yes. felt a lot more confident in, you know, yeah, what, what you want to what you want to capture and what you want to say with your music, you know. So I feel the music has matured without losing its innocence, which I think is quite hard to do. But you when, must... you know, you get you get into your fifties and stuff like that. I think a lot of people lose the kind of innocence that they had when they were young, you know, and um we wanted to move on as well. We also didn't want to kind of create a kind of jangly guitar sound that we had back in the 80s. You know, we wanted to do something that felt correct for the present time. Yes. You know? So and, yeah, and I think also, that's quite important. And I was going to say, I know people, you know, have a love 
heat, quite a lot of heat for Spotify. But I did notice your your monthly listeners, it's, it's nearly 22,000 a month. And, you know, a lot of the tracks yeah. have had, you know, phenomenal, you know, like Pale Spectrum, Melancholy Man, Melancholy Man and Crush the Flowers. Right. And they've all yeah. had incredible listens. So the band... yeah. Are still very much kind of, they're not just like oh yes, thirty people a month are listening. It's like well, that's quite serious kind it's of. It's a lot. It's a lot of people, yeah, and um, yeah, that's always very encouraging when you notice those kind of figures. And um, uh, it, it, it's it's kind of unpredictable, really, how these things happen because I always remember with Melancholy Man, for instance, you know. That that was on, you know, once the internet kind of took off and people were listening to stuff, it was up there very quickly. But, you know, it had a decent amount of listens, but not that many. But then it appeared on a compilation. And it was put together by that group MGMT, a kind of American. Group. Oh, yes. They, they put they put Melancholy Man on a, on a compilation. I can't remember what the name of the compilation was. It's quite a well-known one. But anyway, as soon as it went on that, the amount of listens that it got increased dramatically. You know, I mean, it, it just shot up. And uh, uh, I suppose this is the thing now with music. It's, it is long-term. It's out there for the duration, and you never know when people are going to pick up on it. Yes. <laughs> I think it was that uh, there was a, a collection or there would have been a series called Late Night Tales. That was and, it. That was certainly Late Tales, right. And I think yeah. they get sort of various bands, artists, they sort of say, what would you like to listen to late at night? Give us your 12 tracks. I mean, God, talk about easy collection. And uh, But they're yeah. very successful because, you know, mostly they're people boys, pick yeah, very right. obscure but quite good songs rather than trying that's to right. sort of yeah. look enigmatic. Yeah. So, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so, I mean, it's, it's been quite good. And uh, as I mentioned to you when you first contacted us, we, we are working towards doing... Another album which is supposed to be out next year, but we're actually in the middle of recording it at the moment. Yes, and uh, yeah, so that, that that's going to be. I mean, I like Far Out. Was we were really pleased with it. It's quite a short record, and there's not a lot of tracks on it. Uh, this one is is going to be uh, a lot longer. Uh, we're going to have a lot more songs on it, and. And uh, yeah, that'll be out next year on on Factory Benelux. But we've still got quite a bit of work to do on it. Yes, uh, be, being a duo now, it's it's a bit slower to, <laughs> to get stuff going. You know, yeah. And how have you found this period and the creative process? I mean, because some people, I have to say, some people, a couple said, "Oh, that's been good because they'd done a lot of work last year and did a big tour, and they were expecting to have this year to be a bit more recovery and then." do something next year so it's worked for them but other people it hasn't sort of been such a good bit of timing so I just wondered how you've managed to uh, deal oh, with the, the lockdown yes uh, yeah I don't know it's, it's, it hasn't affected us too much because I'm, this is the first album we've ever done we're, we're doing home recording uh, at some point we're, we're going to go back down to London to work with Ian Cat, again, who co-produced The Light Far Out. But we're doing most of the basic recording here at home. Yes. So before we officially went into lockdown, I was kind of in lockdown at home, working on tracks anyway, uh, not going out very much and just trying to get as much done as I possibly could. The only difference it has made is that whereas the record was meant to be finished this year and come out this year, it's given us a bit more time to 
kind of reflect on what we've already done and, and do the rest of it and, and put it out next year. Uh, we were, we had a gig in, in, that we were supposed to be doing in London uh, next month. Obviously, we're not doing that anymore, and that's going to be rescheduled for next year. But apart from that, it hasn't really affected us too much in terms of our creative process because the creative process, because we're not a group, because there's not four people involved, we're not going into rehearsal rooms anymore and, you know, playing as a group anymore. Yes. For us, it's, it's, it's a very much myself and Carolyn at home writing and just editing things the way that we want them to be, you know. So uh, we're not really in that band situation anymore. Uh, so it's not really affected the, the creative process too much. It's just given us a bit more time. I think it's actually worked quite well for us. Excellent. To be honest. A nice one. Yeah, that's quite helpful. It's always good to, good to come. And just, just, I mean, this is always a bit corny, this line, but, I mean, if you were able to tell your kind of an 18-year-old self, you know, a little bit of advice as they started out in that world that is rock and roll and entertainment, I mean, what would you tell them or just say, oh, by the way, I'll just give you, you know, just a few words that I've picked yeah. up. Yes. Uh, when I think of what I was like when I was 18, which is when I started making music, I don't think anyone could have told me anything. I was just really obstinate. Yes. And single-minded and doing what I wanted to do and wouldn't have listened to anyone, I don't think. Yes. Uh, I had a very kind of um, single-minded attitude to things, you know. Uh, so probably the one thing I would do is I would go back and say, don't be so much like that. <laughs> uh, you've got a lot. You've got a lot to learn. You don't know everything, and uh, you know you need to. But I think uh, the one thing I would do is encourage myself by saying you're going in the right direction by always putting your own creative instincts first. Don't let anything distract you from that because I think once you let go of your what 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 made you interested in music in the first place and you become interested in the kind of materialistic side of it, I think you lose your you know, what what uh, actually makes you original and and unique. Yes. And I think it's very, very important to retain that, you know, so I think uh, that that would be my main main message to myself. Which is quite a weird thought. Going back and speaking to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yes, no, but, but sometimes you know people. I can't remember. They often just, I don't know. Yeah, it's what lessons have you learned, really? Yes, uh, what lessons? That's it, probably. You know, uh, and uh, I think, I think it's uh, <clears throat> the the main lesson you can learn in music is that it never gets any easier. Um, uh, never gets I think a lot of people dream when they're young that they're going to be in this situation where you know they're living out this again I'll use the same expression of fantasy life of um, you know where you know you're kind of surrounded by you know kind of things that you dream about having when you're young but actually music's just an awful lot it's an awful lot of hard work really yes 
all the people that I, I know that are still doing music from that time, I really admire their tenacity and and continuing to do what they do, you know. I mean, someone like uh, <coughs> Stephen from the Pastels, who, you know, is still doing fantastic inventive creative music with the group <coughs> and has created a whole community for music here as well. He's got... Um, involved with a record shop here called Monorail Music and um, it's a great centre for people to go and meet other musicians and feel that they've got a place, a focus, you know, to people that have got the same interests as them and everything, you know, and it's it's been really, really beneficial to Glasgow. In fact, I would say it's the last remnant of that kind of early 80s Glasgow uh, scene. It's still alive. Thanks yes. to, you know the efforts that they put in and keeping it alive. You know. Are you? Are, are, and, uh, and also, I just noticed. I mean, Cherry Red Records brought out this massive kind of uh, compilation. Yeah, then there's a, been there's been yeah. an exhibition, and now there's been another. There's a book, isn't there, about live gigs in was it Glasgow or Scotland? Which is yeah, just, that's right. <clears throat> that's right. Yeah, the guy was in touch with me about that. That's right. So it's um, um yes, it's been interesting that it, that kind of archive and heritage of the the whole scene has been well and truly sort of um yeah 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 there's a lot of so much of it you know and uh factory has been archived to the utmost <laughs> <laughs> the utmost point but i don't really think there's an awful lot more to say about it you know and there's mm. movies books god there's so much so many uh seminars and things about it you know uh, but <clears throat> it's encouraging to see that, you know, there's still interest out there, I think, you know. Um, well, absolutely. The, yeah, the 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 thing about, I think what's sad about what happened in Manchester is that it's, it is very much talking about the past. <laughs> to use their own title, you know, it's, it's something that's dead and gone, really. Um Whereas uh, the good thing about Glasgow is there's still a sense that there's a lot happening here. There's still a lot of new groups coming through and there's still a sense of uh, it belongs in a kind of community setting rather than, you know, uh, having, you know, once the commercial sector moves in and takes over everything, you know. The last time I went to Manchester, I mean, it was in the early 2000s, so it's been quite a while, but I was kind of shocked at, how so many venues and hacienda and so on, it had all been taken over by property companies. Yes. Well, God, yeah, I mean, it's just unbelievable. It's just all, you know, flats being built and restaurants and bars and all that, you know, but the the whole kind of, all the music's gone, the kind of, you know, the but they, they lean on it really heavily to promote property and so on. So, it's, but Glasgow's kept pretty down to earth in that sense, you know. It's amazing. It's, um, yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, what's it like? What's it like where you're based? Is, is there well, much going on there? It's <clears> kind of. I mean, to be honest, I always felt. I mean, I'm a bit. I don't know. Norwich never sort of really developed that much. I don't think much of a really kind of amazing, vibrant music scene. I'm sure there, there are yeah. bits and pieces, but you know, you only have to look what's come out of this area to realize there hasn't been a huge amount you know we you know in the 80s yeah. you know we had the Higgs and serious drinking farmers boys none of them yeah. really yeah. did that much yeah. and i wouldn't say you would want to yeah. listen to much of that stuff now and um 
Yeah. And, you know, yeah. there's been a lot of kind of all right bands, but mostly it's been just a good place where people can come and play because we used to have the Arts Centre, which is kind of, um, you know, the, right. the yeah. small little club yeah. here. So you'd get yeah. 200, yeah. 300 people who could sort of go there and, yeah. and support that. So, you, you know, that was the place that, that Norwich had. But And there, there are mm. creative things, but it didn't, it never had that like, you know, you've got Glasgow, obviously it's much bigger. But, you know, most places seem to, you know, seem to have a bit more of a scene going on. I'm sure... I'm sure. I mean, yeah. I think it's kind of a city which has got a lot of punters who like to go to things. But I wouldn't say there was a real kind of wow. There's all these bands and they're all sort of incredible, you know. Whereas, yeah, yeah. I suppose when when you look back, it's a, it's a kind of major city thing, isn't it? You're, you're kind of talking Glasgow, Manchester, London, you know. And well, Bristol, I suppose, is a bit different. So yeah. coming from there, you know, it's like. But yeah, you just never know. It's um, uh, I think down south, London swallows up so much of the music industry. You know, it's that's you right. Need to get further away from London to <laughs> to create anything. I think really, you know. But it's um, yeah. I mean, and you probably you've played in Norwich, I guess, quite a few times. Yeah, yeah. But I, I certainly with the wake. I mean, certainly played there with altered images and with the wake. I reckon I must have played there twice, but for the life of me, I can't remember the venues. Well, there's the art centre we... on St Benedict Street, and then yeah. there's and then that there's the water the bell. So I wonder if we played there, but and the waterfront as well. 80s. Yes, the art centre was yeah, definitely there in the eighties, and the uh, waterfront was there in the nineties. So you were probably at the yeah. UEA with altered images at the university, yeah. and yeah. then probably at the art centre yeah. for the wake. Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right, actually. Yeah. I would have yeah. that one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. And then, yeah, so, yeah, and that was quite, yeah, I mean, obviously, a lot of gigs we did, we supported New Order as well, so there's a good chance that we probably supported them down there, but. I don't God think I don't think played. New Order ever played. Oh, they did. They played a very early gig, a very funny little venue, which was kind of a nightclub, and I think they came on very late oh. in 19. 19- oh, right. That- that must have been before our yeah, schedule. and I don't think yeah. that you know, and I don't think many people went. I think it was, yeah, it was a tiny, you know. I think that was literally very soon after they formed. But then right. I don't think New yeah. Orders ever played in Norwich actually ever in their lives. So that was the end of that. They right. sort of yeah, yeah. they yeah. kind of probably went through by. They probably came down, went to Cambridge, then London, but they didn't sort of swing through Norwich. Right. So, um, yeah. yeah. And then yeah. suddenly in yeah. 87, they were playing the NEC and the Wembley Arena. They were playing those kind of big yeah, venues, sure. weren't they? Yeah. So, um, in, in the early 80s, New Order were quite self-contained, so they, they didn't really work a lot with uh, major promoters. So uh, Rob, the manager, tends to book gigs with, you know, just... Uh, Again, independent guys who were just doing it off their own back. So, you know, if they come up and played in Scotland, they wouldn't do it with the big uh, kind of agencies that were up here. They refused to play with them. Rob always made a point of just going with a guy who was doing it off his own back. Right. Uh, and maybe there just wasn't anyone around in Norwich at that time who tried that. Yeah, you know? that could be true. Uh, yeah, they, 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 they tended to do that in, uh, up until probably about 87 when they started to do bigger and bigger gigs but they tended to yeah just do things in quite a kind of small way yes I know. yeah 
And that is going to be the end of the interview that I had with Gerard. From the wake, and uh, for those who may have been paying attention, um, yes, the, about an hour into the interview, the credit ran out, so there was a bit of a jump there. That might be a bit obvious, and if you, well, it might not have been obvious at all, but anyway, I had to put some more money in the meter, and uh, it's all good. Anyway, look, thank you ever so much for listening, and a big thank you to Gerard for giving me the time for that interview. This has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. These interviews have all been archived, and you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Just check it out. It may just change your life. Anyway, have a great week. Bye.